I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 15 as we get into God's Word together. You know, this is Jesus before Pilate, but you'll see from the title that the reality is really the other way around. It's Pilate before Jesus. And that's what we're talking about this morning. You know, it's been good to focus on the cross um, and the lead, what's leading, what's led up to that uh, as we approach Good Friday and Easter. I wish I could say that I'd planned it out this way, but that's just the way it happened. So um, God's good in doing that. Um, just to kind of set this in the context of where we're at, Mark chapter 13, uh, Jesus foretold the future. He looked ahead at, at heaven. And in, in chapter 14, there was a trial held by the Sanhedrin against their own rules at night. And the outcome was decided even before it took place. Um, Jesus knew what was coming. And everyone, even the disciples, bought into uh, the lie that Jesus' death would put an end to him being the Messiah. So at the top of your outline, and I hope you have your outline with you, it says this, having been accused before the religious authorities, Jesus is now brought before the irreligious authorities. Both Jew and Greek alike condemn Jesus. In Pilate's presence, Jesus doesn't defend himself. He's like an innocent lamb being led to the slaughter. The crowd demands that the criminal Barabbas be released instead of Jesus. So let's read our passage, uh, Mark chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, replied Jesus. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now, it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate. Knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to them, to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder. Crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged 
and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is, the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put on his own clothes and then led him out to crucify him. This is God's word. Maybe you've heard of the name William Booth. Um, He began a mission work in, in the 1800s, actually 1865, on London's poor East End. And he was met with tremendous opposition. Uh, He he set up a tent initially, and the tent was torn down by gangs. Uh, When they moved the work into a warehouse, uh, other gangs came and threw rocks and dirt and mud and all kinds of stuff through the windows, and then eventually fireworks. And then uh, crowds would frequently uh, stone the building, and they'd put new windows in, and the new windows would be broken by stones being thrown at them. And so William Booth and his followers came to realize that they were at war. And in 1879, after they'd been with it already for a number of years, this Christian mission became known as the Salvation Army. And General Booth was called the general because they were at war, and he was leading the effort. And their paper... Uh, was named the war cry. Persecution was fierce in 1889 for the Salvation Army, and 669 of them were personally assaulted. Some of them died. Many were uh, severely injured. And it took years for the persecution and the sacrifice Uh, before the general public in supposedly Christian England recognized the Salvation Army for their work. And even then, it really wasn't for their evangelistic work. It was more for the social good that they were doing as they cared for the poor. But General Booth and his followers lived out what is the repeated teaching of Scripture. You have the references on there. I won't read the references, but... Paul says to Timothy, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Paul wrote to the Philippians under arrest in Rome while he was in Rome under arrest, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. To the Thessalonians, he said, so that no one would be unsettled by these trials, you know quite well that we were destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. And dear friends said, Peter, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice 
that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed in glory uh, when glory is revealed. You know, there's been a lot of persecution of believers over the years, um, and especially of evangelicals. Sometimes the persecution has been obvious, uh, like those that were against the Salvation Army. Other times it's been a subtle rejection, but often there. This is because, and this is on your outline if you're taking notes, and I hope you are, Christianity is countercultural. One Christian who endured the persecution of Idi Amin in Uganda said that if we aren't experiencing any opposition to our faith, we're maybe going in the same direction as our culture. And that is an ominous warning. So the first thing that um, I noticed in this passage that I want to point out to you is number one on the outline, our great king's silence. In the face of the accusations, uh, and even there's some amazement too, the Sanhedrin knows that they need to move quickly to get the Jesus case, if you will, before Pilate. They want Jesus executed before the Sabbath begins on Friday evening at sundown. Pilate was the governor of Judea and he hated the Jews and he loved being able to antagonize them. But he was also all about politics. Surprise, surprise, a politician all about politics and making compromises to keep the peace. And so at the same time, he wanted to stay and he knew he needed to stay in the good graces of Rome. So Pilate thought that he held Jesus' fate in his hands. The reality is that it was the other way around. It was Pilate who was really the one standing before Jesus because Jesus would judge him. The only accusation that seemed to concern Pilate was the question he asks in verse two. Look at verse two. Are you the king of the Jews? And do you remember the high priest back in chapter 14 uh, asked Jesus, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? And Pilate was the same way. And just like the high priest, he was accurate in what he thought Jesus was saying, but he was ignorant as to who Jesus really was. When Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus responds, still in verse two, in, in, a, in an ambiguous way. You have said so, is what Jesus says. I think what Jesus is saying is basically, yes, I am indeed the king, but I'm not the kind of king you th you're thinking of. As Jesus said in John, my kingdom is not of this world. That's what Jesus was thinking, I think. And I think he didn't respond directly because of several reasons. I think to say yes would have put him on the same level as other messiahs. And you know, there had been a lot of other messiahs who came and probably were before Pilate, but who thought, who said to the world that they were the messiah. So I think he would have, Pilate would have put Jesus on that same level. And it was Jesus, had Jesus responded like that, Pilate would have never been confronted with the truth that Jesus is Lord, that he is the Christ, that he is God the Son. 
To say yes would have played into what Pilate was already thinking about Jesus. Jesus' kingship wasn't based on, on having an army behind him. It was based on the truth. Not on a, on a powerful army like Rome had behind Pilate. This king, King Jesus, serves. This king, King Jesus, washes feet. This king forgives. That's what his kingdom is about. And then, had Jesus responded more directly, it would have taken the attention off the main question, which you have on your outline, uh, who do you say that I am? That's the question that Jesus asked of Peter back in Mark chapter 8. Who do you say that I am? And salvation, again, this is on your outline, for each individual, Pilate included, depends on the answer to that question. It depends on your answer to that question. So at this point, look at verse 3. There are more accusations. The chief priests, it says, accused him of many things. And Luke, you know, if we look at the parallels in Matthew and Luke, Luke provides some more specifics about this. They began to accuse him saying, we have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be the Messiah, a king. Six times in Mark chapter 14, Jesus is called the king. And the Jewish leaders, and the reason for that is the Jewish leaders knew that a religious charge would not make Pilate indict Jesus. And so they came up with a political charge. And that's where you see, you keep seeing this movement in chapter 15 of, of more and more uh, of the, the, the political aspect of them accusing Jesus of who he was, of being the Messiah, a king. So Pilate again turns to Jesus and asks him in verse 4, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. And then verse 5, here's the amazement. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. And Luke tells us that Pilate would try to wash his hands of Jesus and, and send him to Herod. Herod, remember, was the one who cut off the head of John the Baptist. And Jesus says nothing to him. And the prophecy of Isaiah 53 is being fulfilled. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. The king is silent in the face of his accusers. No defense. Basically, not a word. Jesus is in control. And he knows what he needs to do. He's making sure he goes to the cross. That's what he needs to do. And it's the same for us as it is for Jesus in the sense that there's comfort in the fact that nothing happens in your life that's random. That's not the way God, who is a sovereign God, works in our lives. God is mysteriously working everything, even the things that you think are bad, for good in your life. You need to know that. You need to remember that. You need to thank God that he is going to use even those bad things for his glory to build you up to be a, a member of his kingdom, to be more like his son Jesus. That's his goal for you. That's his goal for all of us as believers. 
God is in charge. Nothing in your life is accidental. It's not as if God somehow forgot what was going on and let something bad slip by in your life. That's not who God is. The next thing that we see here in, uh, in, in these verses is our great king's substitution. That's number two on the outline. The injustice and the insults. God, the sinless son, will be beaten and crucified. At Passover, Pilate was in the habit of releasing a prisoner in order to gain the support and the goodwill of the people. That's why he did it. His motivation was anything but pure. And he apparently would let them make the call as to who would be released. So on one hand, you had this man who was a rebel, a freedom fighter, uh, a known murderer named Barabbas. And you know, in Hebrew, the word bar means son. And Abba means father. And so Barabbas is literally the son of the father. Um, and he was, he was waiting to be executed. And Rome and Pilate would gladly put him to death. He was an insurrectionist. And so verse 8 says, the crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Pilate sees this, the way out of a tough situation. And he's already told the Jewish leaders, we know from, from John, that he found no grounds for charging Jesus. And again, we know from another parallel that Pilate's wife had warned him, and, and this is in Matthew, uh, don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. He also knew that the chief priests had only arrested Jesus out of envy from earlier in Mark, actually in Mark in this passage, verse 10. And then look at verse nine. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Pilate was hoping he could release an innocent man and at the same time stick it to the Sanhedrin. But things did not go as he hoped. And this is again on your outline, but things were going exactly as God had planned. The religious leaders were ready. Look at verse 11. The chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. And Pilate then asked what he should do with Jesus in verse 12. And maybe he was thinking they'd say, well, we want you to release Barabbas and Jesus. Release them both. That's not what happened. Verse 13, they say, crucify him. That's what we want you to do with Jesus. And Pilate makes one final offer. Look at verse 14. Why? What crime has he committed? But verse 14 continues, they shouted all the louder, crucify him. And the crowd accepts responsibility for crucifying the king, executing the king. While Pilate publicly washes his hands and thinking he's doing that and getting rid of any responsibility for himself. Jesus was innocent, but he was declared guilty. And Barabbas, who was guilty, is treated as though he was innocent. Jesus died 
in Barabbas' place. And Jesus died in your place. That's an amazing reversal so that we might become the sons and daughters of our heavenly father. One commentator writes this, without knowing it, the religious leaders and Pilate and Barabbas were all part of a tapestry of grace which God was weaving for sinners. Their actions spoke louder than their words, louder than the cries of the crowds for Jesus' blood. A tapestry of grace. I love that that phrase. And that's what God is weaving together in your life. No matter what is happening in your life, he's using whatever is going on as a tapestry that he is weaving together of his grace in your life, even through bad things that happen. And maybe you think, well, I brought these bad things on myself. You know what? God will use even that for his glory to make you like his son, Jesus. Jesus was not dying for his own crimes. He was dying for yours. He was not dying for his own sins. He was dying for yours. And he did not die for himself. He died for us. And I think it's worth pausing here for a minute to consider how we should endure personal injustice. And I know it happens. I know there are injustices that have happened to some of you. I've talked to you. I've heard your stories. I agree with you. There are injustices that happen all the time. So how do we respond to those injustices? Oftentimes when that happens, we feel almost like we're cut off from God. God, why aren't you hearing my prayer? Why aren't you bringing justice? And we forget that his kingdom is of another world. We're not always gonna get justice here. I love what Dorothy Sayers said. She was a a mystery writer uh, in the early 1900s in England, popular mystery writer, also a Christian. And she was responding to somebody who asked why Christians go through bad things. Why does that even happen? Why is there so much evil in the world? Why is there so much suffering? And she said, I wish I could answer that question. I really can't. But all I know is that the God who allowed this took his own medicine. By sending Jesus, think of all that Jesus went through for you. God the Son suffered so greatly for us. Hebrews says, the high priest of ours, Jesus, understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. Jesus cares deeply for you. And one day, he will balance the scales of justice. And that's our hope of heaven. I talked to someone recently who said that um, they were grieving because a, a close friend of theirs uh, had a, a, a cancer that was very advanced, very surprising. And uh, it said it's so hard to think through that and how I deal with that as a friend. That's our hope of heaven, 
bad things will happen here. They happen all the time. But we have a hope. We don't suffer like people who have no hope. And God will use whatever injustice you're going through to make you like Jesus. That's what he does. That's what he wants to do, to make you spiritually mature. Peter saw Jesus suffer, and he knew more than anyone that Jesus was more innocent than anybody else. And yet he takes this opportunity to write to the persecuted Christians that he was caring for, and he says, of course, you get no credit for being patient if you are beaten for doing wrong. But if you suffer for doing good and endure it patiently, God is pleased with you. You know, we're all here this morning because we want to we wanna love on each other. We want to fellowship together. But we also want to hear how we can please God, how we can live a life pleasing to him. And, and he says here, it says, if you endure what you're going through patiently, God is pleased with you. So you've got this question on your outline. How do we respond when justice is beyond our reach? How should we respond? Think of all the social injustices that we see every day in our lives. Racial injustice, uh, age discrimination, unfairness at work, uh, variations in healthcare, whatever it is, we see injustices all the time. So how do we respond? It's on your outline. First thing, let go of any expectation of justice on this earth. Jesus came to establish the kingdom of God, not because uh, we would receive justice in this world. He knew he wasn't going to get justice in this present world system. He didn't get angry. He didn't get bitter. He submitted himself to the will of his father. He entrusted himself to the one who judges every soul. And then secondly, trust God to set the record straight. Again, it may not be on our timetable, but it will definitely be on God's timetable. Trust God to set the record straight. Focus on just speaking the truth with gentleness and respect. That's what Jesus did, and that's what he asks us to do. Wait on God and submit to his will. And then finally, seek comfort in Jesus. Seek comfort in Jesus. When Paul was in prison in Rome... He wrote his friends in Philippi, where he'd also been in prison, to let them know that he had not lost hope. Obviously, it's what they were thinking. He's in prison. Paul's lost hope. What does Paul say in Philippians 1? And I want you to know, my dear brothers and sisters, that everything that has happened to me here has helped to spread the good news. Wow. He had hope. Paul saw his circumstances as an opportunity to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. And think of it this way. When you suffer unjustly, you are sharing something very intimate with Jesus because he suffered as well for us. You can take comfort in knowing that you worship a God who understands your pain. He knows what you are going through. And he wants you to know that you are not alone in your suffering. 
whatever that suffering is. He shares in your suffering. Another thing that stands out to me in this passage, number three on your outline, is our great king's suffering. The pain and the shame is all there in his suffering. And of course we see in these verses the physical suffering that Jesus went through, but we also don't miss the spiritual suffering. Don't miss the psychological agony that he had to be going through. In the last part of verse 15, Mark simply says that Pilate had Jesus flogged. You know, we don't know that really what that entails because it's not something that is around today, but it was around then. One commentator explains it like this, a Roman scourging was a terrifying punishment. The subject was stripped, bound to a post, and was beaten by a number of guards until his flesh hung in bleeding shreds. The instrument used was the dreaded flagellum, a scourge consisting of leather thongs with several pieces of small, sharp bone tied to them. No maximum number of strokes were prescribed by Roman law. And men condemned to flagellation frequently collapsed and died from the flogging. That's what Jesus went through for you. So following the beating, it says in verse 16 that they called the whole company together. Now that could be as many. A company was 600 men. I can't imagine 600 men crowded around Jesus, but I'm sure that the strongest ones came up and took their, they put their licks in on Jesus. So look what's next. Six things starting in verse 17. Number one, they put a purple robe on him and that was just to mock his royalty. And then the last half of verse 17, they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. Literally, they pressed it down into his head. These were not short thorns. These were long thorns. This was a picture, I think, of God's curse on humanity. And now it's on Jesus. The third thing is in verse 18, they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Like the Romans would hail Caesar, they sarcastically hail Jesus. Fourth thing in verse 19, again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. And then fifthly, in mock worship, falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And then finally, and when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe which think about this, if it was on a back that had been shredded by flogging, it would have coagulated into the body and to rip it off would be to be flogged all over again. And put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. One commentator put it like this, completely alone, humiliated, naked, and beaten nearly to death, our Savior endured yet again ridicule, 
shame, and pain at the hands of sinful men, at the hands of those who he came to save. Oh, how heaven must have looked on in disbelief. Perhaps the angels wept. The father sent his beloved son to rescue and redeem a rebel race. Look at what they have done to our Lord. But look and never forget what our Lord has done for us. You know, there's some sobering poetry here. I mentioned before that um, Barabbas means son of the father. And there are some early manuscripts that give him the name, the surname, or the first name, Jesus. In fact, in Matthew 27, verse 16, in the New English Bible, it literally calls Barabbas, Jesus Barabbas. Jesus, the son of the father. And then, with that same Hebrew, you have Jesus, son of Joseph. Jesus bar Joseph. And so if you think about it here, the crowd wasn't uh, presented with a choice of, of good or evil. They, they, they were presented with Jesus bar Abbas or Jesus bar Joseph. They had the choice between two Jesuses, in effect. And the crowd preferred Jesus bar Abbas instead of Jesus bar Joseph. The choice of Barabbas may have seemed more logical to the crowd because they wanted, they, they were thinking the way the world thinks. They wanted what the world wanted. They wanted insurrection. They wanted to free him. They were afraid of Jesus. They were afraid of what they didn't know maybe. But God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. For as heaven is higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Barabbas was a revolutionary. So what was Jesus? Well, he was a revolutionary of another kind. But he was a revolutionary as well. And so the people weren't choosing between a revolution and not a revolution. They were choosing between what kind of revolution they wanted. because they were both revolutionaries. The question was, which revolution would they choose? It's as if Pilate is saying, here's Barabbas who's burning down the system and killing people. Do you want him released? Or do you want Jesus released? And I've I've interrogated him, and I know that he's healed the sick, and he's made the blind see, and he's raised the dead to life. And as far as I can tell, those things are true. Do you want me to release him? So how do you stop Jesus, who is God the Son? When they nailed him to the cross, they didn't realize that they were putting on the cross the sinfulness of all humanity, of your sins and my sins. And Jesus on the cross was God's answer to a human problem. Christ bearing my sins in his own body. He shed his blood to cleanse us of our sins and to set 
us free. But three days later, he pulled off what you could call the greatest political upheaval of all time. He rose from the dead. Jesus is the leader of a new creation. All of man's systems are doomed to crumble. Only God's kingdom of righteousness will triumph. And you will never be radical, truly radical, until you become a part of that order, of the order of Jesus bar Joseph, Jesus who is God the Son. And if you want an answer to a world that is filled with war and poverty and racism and so much junk, then you can proclaim real liberation has happened in a world that has been enslaved. And you can tell all who are bound mentally and emotionally and spiritually and physically that their liberator has come. Jesus has come for them. And like the people in the crowd that day, we all have a choice. You have a choice of which, which kind of person you're going to follow. Are you going to follow the way of the world? Or are you going to follow the way of Jesus? John said it like this, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, because all that is in the world, the love of the, the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life are not from the Father, but are from the world. Or you follow Jesus, who says, but as, as John writes, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe on his name. Wow, what an offer to become a child of God. And you let Barabbas go, you can somehow take him out. You can hire the National Guard. You can send in a sniper to kill him. You put Jesus in the grave, what happens? He rises from there. He, he, he doesn't stay in that grave. He's alive. So every other revolution destroys enemies. This revolution, the revolution of Jesus, is based on forgiveness. What's different about Christianity than every other religion in the world? It's all about forgiveness. Where else can you receive forgiveness except at the cross of Christ? And that's the invitation that God gives to all of us. So who will you follow? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we know that this all begins by us receiving your forgiveness. And we thank you for the cross. We thank you for your atoning sacrifice and giving your, of yourself Thank you that you came not to be served, but to serve and to give your life as a ransom for us. And if there's anyone here this morning, Lord, who has not received you as their Lord and Savior and surrendered their lives to you, that they would respond in faith right now. We're grateful that you are always at work for the good of everyone who loves you. Help us, Father, like Jesus, to submit to his will Help us to wait on you and come to you when we're tired of carrying our burdens to come to you so that we can have rest. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. And now may the God of peace equip you with all you need for doing his will.
May he produce in you through the power of Jesus Christ every good thing that is pleasing to him. All glory to him forever and ever. Amen. God bless. Have a great day.